Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Axiom Principle. Today, I'm joined with a special guest, Andrew Jones. He is a former colleague of mine, and we decided to have a discussion about his uh, company that he's working for, and it definitely aligns with everything that I talk about on my channel and my show, um, specifically to diversity and inclusion. So, Andrew, welcome. Thank you, Glenn. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, so, uh, if you want, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, where do you uh, come from, why diversity is interesting to you, and uh, if you want to plug your company, go right ahead. All right, thank you very much. Well, as you can probably guess by my accent, uh, I am not based in the U.S. I am uh, based over here in the U.K. Uh, my new company is called Diversonomics. And as you've rightly said, we have a, a focus on, on diversity. It's actually a diversity consultancy where I'm trying to show companies, show organizations how they can leverage diversity to improve their performance. Okay, tell us a little bit about that, leveraging diversity to uh, enhance performance. How, how would you do that in a, in a business setting? Sure. I think we need to get level set, first of all, about what diversity is. And it's a, okay. it's a term that's thrown around quite a lot. And to make sure that we're all talking you know, from the same page or the same sort of vernacular, I think it's, it's a good point just to maybe define that sure. uh, initially. So diversity is, of course, how we are different from one another, right? And in an organizational context, we use diversity to describe you know, how the group members are different from one another. So you have the group as a whole and the, the people in that group, the population in that group. And in my mind, diversity is a measure of how different those people are within that group. Now, traditionally, this has come to mean identity diversity. Okay, mm -hmm. so that is the things you can see. So it could be uh, gender, you know, race, skin color, whatever. Or it could also be the social attributes, which could be maybe your religion or your um, sexual orientation. And that has, as a package, has been defined as diversity. I think, that, you know, that's true. That is a diversity factor, but it's sort of missing the point for me. My key focus, I think where the value comes more from is cognitive diversity. So the diversity in how people think. Hmm. Yeah, the uh, traditional biological um, definition of diversity, or scientific in that matter, is um, observable differences between two things, is the easiest yep. way to describe it. Um, and that's, it goes for all types of things. Like you can tell the different types of species of spider, for example, the worst uh, creature on the planet <laughs> based by easy attributes. Like, you know, a tarantula is a tarantula versus a black widow, for example, you can tell the difference. They have different colorings, different size and, and, and so on, but they're both in the arachnid family, technically. Um, same with, uh, geological references. There's a diversity in ge geology and you can tell the geology apart based by different easy attributes, um, viscosity, um, size, it's uh, brittleness. I can't remember what the t term is for that, but so on and so forth. And then um, diversity, I think, is being expanded as far as this definition is concerned to mean um, the diversity of thought is how it's easily put forth by uh, some people that uh, we should look beyond the, the easy points of diversity and look toward the um, more psychosocial elements of diversity. Yeah, you're absolutely bang on. You know, what you've you've said there is you've pointed out a very good point from an sort of evolutionary standpoint. We are used to classifying things by the way they look. Yep. Maybe the way they sound. You know, the sort of environments we may find, be it as you say, the geology or, or from the animal kingdom, and that is almost inbuilt into us. And in fact, is is probably the source of many of our of our biases. Yep. But as a as a modern society, particularly from a business context or an organizational context, we need to think further than that because we're social creatures, right? We have much more now in the modern world to do with how we interact with each other than maybe we would have as uh, 
as cavemen or, you know, earlier in our history as a species. Mm -hmm. So now we, you know, use that big old brain of ours and we need to think about how those brains are different. And that's actually something that that it it took me a bit of time to, to come around to. But when I really got that, when it really clicked for me and I realized actually it's not all about nurture, right? It's not about people are born and then they have experiences and that changes them. That is a part of it, no doubt. That, you know, that's, that's that's very clear. Sure. But the the brain, the formation of the brain, people's uh, initial, let's call it wiring, right? Maybe maybe the hardware of their brain, that is not the same for everybody. And if anybody's got, you know, more than one child, maybe if they got you know multiple siblings, even multiple pets, even from you know from the same litter, the same family, you have two children you know they have a different personality for example even mm-hmm. when they are you know weeks old you will know wow this this baby's different to the first one you know the first one was a real crier this one's so quiet you know it is so less demanding for example and that really helped me understand wow it, it's not that people make choices about necessarily they don't make choices necessarily about how they act there seems to be a set of almost default actions or thoughts or traits mm-hmm. that govern how people think and how they act. And that, that really is important. So, you know, the software side, if we use that analogy of maybe the hardware is, is what you're born with and the software is, is things that can change over time. You will have experiences, you grow up, you have an upbringing, you maybe have your first job, you go through certain educations, you have certain relationships and that keeps changing right throughout your whole life. But the hardware is the hardware. And as of yet, I'm not aware of any way to change it. I'm sure there's, you know, in the future we'll have implants and all sorts, right? And I'm sure people who have brain injuries or, or have surgeries, you know, there's, there's obviously an a, uh, impact there. And that can, and I'm sure has changed people's personalities. But fundamentally, that difference is what I'm, I'm referring to. That's one of the differences I'm referring to is the fact that People have this this default architecture of the brain, and that really impacts how people work together. And if you have too much of one sort in an organization, you know that organization, that group will take on a maybe a culture or, or a particular way of operating that is more similar to those in that group, and you could get a completely separate group that have almost a 180 degree way of working and that's the diversity that i'm referring to yeah you could you can actually evidence this by uh what's going on at google for example they're probably the biggest company in easy's target and it's clear that they have a cultural bias and it's because their executive leadership team all kind of think the same way they all agree on the same politics they all um have the same kind of mission and vision um they don't diverge too greatly from that particular position there might be one or two outliers but all in all i mean ceo and coo and friends they're all of the same persuasion as it were even even though they're from different parts of the country um there was something interesting you said in there and that's the um hardwiring and the and the soft wiring or the software of the brain now uh one of the interesting things that I found in uh, studying, just let's start with intelligence because it's usually a good predictor of success, and that's that uh, intellectual capacity seems to be about 50 to 80% genetic. Now, what genes those are, nobody knows yet, but we've identified a possibility of around twenty to 30,000 different genes um, in the last study that I read that could be indicators or... Um, that could be uh, genetic components that predict or create your intellectual capacity. Um, I don't want to say intelligence because that's not the case. There's different varieties of intelligence and you may be good in one and not so good in another. But overall, there's the the G factors of what it's called in psychology. And uh, the overall G factor does seem to be at least half genetic and the other half environmental um, because your 
your hardware can get upgrades believe it or not your 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 neurology can change over time uh, be it it is slight it's very small you're you're talking about very small uh changes that might um permanently change your attitude um another thing that can happen is you can introduce chemicals into the body um such as hallucinogens and things like that and they actually do change your brain brain chemistry as well so there's we do have modifiers and all the ones that we have so far are actually not for the better <laughs> they're for the worse sadly <laughs> um and they happen to be all the psychedelic and whatnot drugs that people can take and and it changes your uh biochemistry sadly that i've seen anyways there's been plenty of studies on the change of uh neurological um what's the word neurological activity between somebody that's a meth head versus somebody that's never touched it in their life and there's a clear difference between the two even after they've quit for years it's it's wow. pretty yeah, yeah it's pretty scary to be honest because at least we know we can change it chemically but not for the better um, changing it for the better, we don't know how to do yet, but I'm pretty sure somebody's thinking about it. I'm, I'm sure they are. I'm sure they are. And that, that's a whole other uh, exciting avenue to consider. Um, but yeah, I think in the mainstream, you know, particularly people who I, I work with and, and all the the elements I'm very interested in, you know, your, your average Joe, your, your, your local employer, your company, or as you say, even some of the bigger companies like, mm-hmm. like Google, in most cases, we're talking about people who have this this cognitive diversity, and maybe they don't even realize you know, how different people are. They might just think, "Oh, hey, that you know that guy who I I sometimes deal with from accounting, he's such a jerk." Yeah. Right? They might think that, but often that guy's not being a jerk on purpose. And we all know there's some who are. <laughs> yeah, there are <laughs> definitely some a that are. Very small amount of the population, but most of the time. That person just has a different way of thinking to you, and they might find the, you know the way you make decisions. They may find the the types of of uh, information you like to process or, or the lack of information. You know, they may find that they just don't like the way you operate, and it's it's just maybe they're that one hundred eighty degree difference to you, and and you, know, you may find the same same with that person. Whereas you know somebody else. Maybe there's somebody on your team or somebody in a different department who you just click with. You know, you, you may meet them for a couple of minutes and then you are on the same page. You like working the same way. And hey, that's great. Now, how can that be? That That's just down to those differences in that default setting. Just how people would normally operate. They're not in a high stress environment. They are just motoring along without really engaging their brain thinking about what they're going to do next they're just operating every day you know the normal you pick monday morning 10 30 someone's got their coffee what are they doing that's probably how they're thinking and that is something that's quite powerful to discover because all those perhaps maybe let's call them corporate enemies you've made maybe they don't even know they're your enemy but that's somebody who you're not too happy with or even the friends right so it goes to explain where that comes from and if you can just see past that and realize oh actually i can improve that relationship or i can stop giving myself those negative thoughts i can work better with that person and advance the mission of this organization much better and even knowing now what i may do to annoy that person i can start to control myself it gives me that self-awareness what i have to think okay let me not act perhaps so casual with this type of person because that person really likes me to be you know to the point and and start talking about how we're going to complete the goal Mm -hmm. or vice versa there may be somebody who is maybe more sensitive more introverted and if i just sort of burst in the room and start saying hey let's do it this way let's do it that way don't give them a chance to talk they're probably just going to close down and, and they may nod along but really they're not agreeing with what i'm saying so I need to, you know, we all need to develop that self-awareness and then be able to manage ourselves. And that will help our organizations function better. Yeah, you, you point out another good um, actual point that we've seen in the corporate world as well, where um, uh, 
the example that comes to mind immediately is the leadership approach of Steve Jobs. And that his approach was to walk in the room and tell everyone this is how it's going to be. And they all say yes, sir, essentially. So he was basically the extrovert, extrovert in a room of introverts where he'd just walk in and that's this is the company. This is the way we're doing things. And after he died, um, that for several months, actually, their company was in, in um, cultural chaos because they all took point from him. And now that he's gone, there didn't have anybody that could fill those shoes because they didn't have an extrovert that was next in line to be the CEO. They, they got an introvert instead. And so they had to do a major cultural shift to be able to stay um, viable and competitive. And I don't know that that's actually helped them out a little bit or not, because he was also a technological genius. But uh, like their last couple products after that, that's when they took away the uh, the headphone jack off the iPhone. It was, uh, yeah, let's try this different design. And I'm pretty sure he would have said no. But <laughs> shortly mm. after he died, he, you know, that they had to struggle a little bit to find themselves, essentially. It's... Well, that's very interesting. Sorry to cut you off there, Glenn. Um, yeah, so sure. the other, other element of my company is is actually corporate culture. So I think these two subjects are absolutely almost well, connected and maybe even interchangeable in their impacts. If we think about, you know, diversity in, in people in a group, which is how those individuals sort of work together and, and interact, then on a, a macro scale, the culture, you know, the, the how people influence each other when they don't actually work together. That is is the other side of the, of the equation. And what you've pointed to there is you know, an absolute classic case, right, where you have this maybe extroverted or, or, or charismatic leader. You, know, you can think even of a, of a Richard Branson who is almost interchangeable with the brand, right? You, you can't think Steve Jobs without Apple, almost. You can't think Richard Branson without Virgin. Mm-hmm. And okay, Richard Branson's still alive, but you can think forward to a Steve Jobs moment where, wow, you know, when he goes that company is going to struggle, right? Because, it, it, you know, he's he's part of every single project. He's there. Maybe he's just a figurehead, right? I'm sure there's a, thousands of people working away in the background to make that company a success. Yep. But he's become synonymous with the company. And that's a particular, particular cultural issue for that organization. And if they don't have a proper succession plan to manage that, then, as you say, they're opening themselves up for risk. Imagine if... Steve Jobs wasn't a technical genius and he was just an extroverted guy who maybe just liked to have his way and was maybe surrounded by, you know, the term yes men, people who will just agree with him because they don't want to challenge. And that culture has become, you know, very much um, difficult for people to, to raise issues, particularly if they're introverted. Yep. You know, that company probably wouldn't, well, I'm sure we wouldn't have Apple as we see it today, right? We're just lucky that Steve Jobs had the uh, the technical know-how to back up his uh, his mannerisms. Yeah, that's true. That's, that's I think, a benefit. Now, in other companies, it might not work out that way. Maybe they actually don't know much about what their corporate um, mission and vision is, but they still step in and try to basically um, run the show, as it were. You can see that mm-hmm. for sure. So, uh, what uh, we we've touched on it a little bit, and uh, I think uh, we should do a little bit deeper dive. And that's to say that um, we've pretty much outlined and defined what diversity is. But how would you go about taking the diversity of of thought, the diversity of different peoples and their mannerisms and whatnot, and make it inclusive what kind of uh coaching tips tricks whatever you want to call it would you use um to try and foster such an environment sure yeah excellent question so so diversity and then you know, we mentioned inclusion people are often putting these terms together you know diversity and inclusion mm-hmm. uh, i think that's that's more of a recent phenomenon because the the definition of diversity is that's changed over time or is beginning to change maybe away from identity diversity and into, you know, a little more, uh, a little more rigorous in terms of the, the cognitive side and, and people's perspectives. 
we see inclusion being added because you can't just have diversity and expect to have success. Yes. Okay. You can't just get a a mixed bag of people, stick them in a room, and think, hey, because they're different from each other, they're going to be successful, right? You, you can't just expect that. You need to have some sort of glue in there. And again, this is related to the culture of that group. Yep. So inclusion is more about how open we are to accept the diversity of the other person, particularly how is the group able to absorb those differences and put them together in such a way that it creates that better performance. Another way of thinking about inclusion is, you know, as it says, you know, it's inclusive. It is how willing the group is to accept others. You may find that, uh, particularly in the groups that are t- perhaps less diverse, you know, let's say there's uh, eight or nine people who sort of look the same or come from the same background, and then somebody else comes into the group who is from a different background. How how happy or how willing are those nine going to be to accept that extra person? That is that's where we're going with with inclusion. Hmm. So I know it's often cited that. Uh, there's a ton of research, and even in leadership, there's research stating that a more diverse group has higher um, performance. And oftentimes, what I've seen the more social justice people do is they'll take this demonstrable fact, and then they'll only take it as a half-truth, and convert it to say that just because they have a different mix of different cultures, different sexes, and different races, therefore they'll be successful. Um, what do you say to that, and how would you, uh, how would you try to uh, modify it to say, well, really, this is what's going on? If that's the case, yeah, would, yeah, no, that, that is exactly where where the conversation is going, and yeah, I think you're right to to raise it as a discussion point. It's certainly one that you know, if you don't do this right, it can have pretty big implications for for organizations and for for society in general. Yep. Um, so. First of all, you know, let's, let's be very clear. So, you know, I want to be very clear about my position. I'm all for fairness. Uh, I'm all for equality. I think nobody should be prejudiced against. Nobody should have less of an opportunity in life or in a company, um, and be that on the basis of identity diversity or any other diversity. So right. you know, that, that's very important. We want to be clear about that. Absolutely. Um, but then, you know, back to our, our previous point, you can't just expect the magic to happen. Right. You need to have that that inclusion. You need to have that culture where you are willing as an organization to, to use all those strengths and put them in the right direction and to organize them into a, a mission, into a team that will go ahead and achieve the goal. You can't just hope it will happen. Right. So I think the, the general tone and the culture in the organization has to be one that, that is inclusive. And I think a lot of that is about respect about respecting people's opinions, being willing to listen to opinions and having your your decision-making be probably more team-based. So, uh, you know, we all know that solving things by committee is usually less efficient. And it is if you're considering efficiency to be just speed of decision-making, but maybe quality of decision-making will be different if you get more perspectives. And we see that time and time again. A great example is is hiring, right? If you get an organization where, you know, one person can just hire another person, they tend to, over time, make poorer choices. On one side, they're maybe hiring slightly out of nepotism. You know, they people they know, they can hire their, their major clients, uh, their son or daughter's just graduated. Hey, we can do that. that. That's one side of it. But also, they have blind spots, right? And by having maybe different people on that hiring committee with mm-hmm. with different biases. And we all have biases. We can't say we don't. We try not to, but we do. Right. That's just being human. By having different perspectives, we can shed some light in those blind spots from different directions and then make a better decision as a team. But as you say, if you don't have that culture, if you don't have that systematic way of approaching that decision, then you're not going to get all those insights from everybody on the team. Okay. That's uh, that's an interesting way to put it. You put in uh, a little 
tag in there to hiring and whatnot. Let's touch on that a little <clears throat> bit because it's probably the it's been a controversial talking point, as it were. Um, I've referenced in a previous show of mine about the resume study, and it wasn't really a study. Um, sadly, it was send out resumes, and this is what we saw. Um, I wouldn't call that a study by the longest shot, mainly because that's what I kind of do academically. Um, it was a good experiment, I'll put it that way. And what they found was uh, people with like cultural names were less likely to get callbacks than those with like John or Edward or whatever um, kind of generic run-of-the-mill na- names. And um, it exposes a bias in the hiring individual. So one of the ways I've thought of combating that, but it do, it's not completely effective because eventually you're going to have to meet the person and interview them, right? But at least to um, offset some of that is to uh, do a blind resume uh, study where you just rip out any of the personal information that might indicate whether this person, uh, where they're at culturally or um, what their... Uh, sexuality is what uh, sex they are and rip all that out and then you get to choose based on basically what's on the page and um that's pretty much it i mean that'll at least get you through the door but that's not going to stop bias i would assume because then uh once it gets to the person that has to interview their their biases are going to creep in um but how would you combat something like that where where could or what practices could people use to try to combat at least a little bit of that bias to get everyone uh, the straight and fair fair chance yeah that, that's a great uh, point thank you for raising that uh, that experiment I think it's a very uh, very topical one a very good one to demonstrate what we're talking about here with those biases um, right. I don't think anybody would want to discriminate you know on purpose. But it does happen. We have that natural, you know, based maybe on our experiences, based on societal norms. Those things, unfortunately, do happen. So by taking the the names off the resume, you know, make sure there's no no hint to gender, even age, right? You can think, well, you know, listing your your previous roles, your previous companies with even the dates or your graduation date, you can start to think, oh, okay, I can sort of get a picture in my mind about how old this person is. And that might not actually be relevant to the role. You know, if someone can demonstrate they have the experience or and they have the skills, then maybe that should be enough. So I think overall, even you know, the resume system around the world is, is probably a little bit broken and in need of disruption. Right. Yeah. Um, but that that's a whole other whole other story. Um, what you've mentioned there is is a good way to do it. So you you take off all those those criteria that maybe would point to elements of your identity and then when you get to the hiring process i think that is where you still you have to have that that group approach you know you yes. can't necessarily have one person making the decision you got to have multiple viewpoints and you mentioned google before when they they've you know done a lot of work in this area laszlo box book um you know work rules is, is pretty good and goes through a lot of that information you know really b- being driven by the data not by maybe what you see you know that is very important so it's really using systematic tools to overcome the biases that we normally have and a great example of this actually that just comes to mind and um some of the dates i may i may miss i believe it was the toronto orchestra have you heard of this this one before yeah i have but go ahead yeah. and share it you don't need the, I'll share it anyway. on the... i think i think it was the toronto orchestra so they realized they maybe had a problem with diversity. Uh, I think the orchestra, the musicians were, you know, I'm going to say 80% men uh, and, you know, white men, I think it was. And then they decided, hey, you know what, you know, what can we do to fight some of this uh, this bias that we probably have in selection? So, that, well, all that really matters is the performance of the musician because people come to listen to an orchestra. They want to listen to the orchestra, not necessarily see the orchestra so they removed the identity elements by auditioning the musicians behind a curtain and they even put a uh, a soft uh, foam floor so they couldn't hear the the high heels 
of anybody who is wearing high heels, which I'm sure is the ladies. Yep. And after that audition, the number of women in the orchestra went up dramatically. And I think it was close to 50%. Yep. It was more than double. And it, yeah. So it really, it really went, uh, you know, amazingly in the right direction or, you know, in, and they get, let's get be clear the right direction in terms of the talented musicians. So yep. they removed the bias They and they were looking for who sounded the best, who could play the best. That was the decision criteria. Yeah, and, and I it think, worked out very well. I think they uh, people miss that out of this, out of that particular example. Because what they'll do is they'll take that particular example and say, look, we got gender parity by removing bias. And it's it's not about gender parity that they got. They got better performers. They got more merit out of removing gender bias. It wasn't that they got more women. They got a better quality because their yeah, bias that, was essentially the holding them back. Right. And that's it. So the bias was holding them back. So they, they weren't doing it purely for the gender parity. They were doing it for the best sound. And as it happens, the biases were, were removing the, the great uh, or the very good female musicians uh, in previous times where they had recruited. So, yeah, yeah great example. And uh, that's really highlighting the point. Um, and, and just to drive that home, so for those at home, for those with their own company, or are they looking for ways to remove that that bias, that unconscious bias? You know, think of, of your curtain. Think of your foam flooring. Think of the tools you can use to shield the identity aspects of your candidates in the hiring example, or if it's in decision-making, you know, we talked about again in, in the orchestra. What are you looking for? You're looking for the best musician, the best sounding musician in that example. Or if you are, you know, looking for a, a project to invest in or an asset to invest in, you know, which one provides the greatest return, be it return on capital or whatever measure you're using, but have that numerical measure, have that be the decision criteria instead of you know, a personal recommendation from somebody or maybe who's on the project or whatever. And you can have multiple decision criteria, um, but make it logical and make it data-based. Uh, data-driven, you mean? Well, yeah, not not, uh, not not a database, but yeah. data-based with a D at the end, exactly. So data-driven data is probably a better way of describing it. Just to make sure that somebody didn't hear that wrong. <laughs> <laughs> no, good clarification. You, you never know. So um, I think that touches on another interesting aspect, and let's bring it into business a little bit. I've asked this question, um, and this was not on your uh, cheat sheet of questions, but this it's very much in line with what we're talking about. And uh, I've asked this question to um, my research colleagues in um, the Diversity and Inclusion Research Hub that I'm, I belong with at my university. I've asked this above... Uh, to many of the management and whatnot that I work with, um, including executive leadership. And I've asked this of other people outside uh, of the company I work for as well. And I always got the same answer, which is important to me for two reasons, because they realize um, two things out of it. And I think you'll see it uh, the moment I ask you it, actually. And that question is... Um, it's a business question. So it's a hypothetical situation, a thought experiment where you have, let's um, let's say it's a $10 million project and it's an IT-based project where you have to uh, migrate to the cloud or something, something that everybody's thinking about in business. Uh, who do you get to do that? And usually the answer I get is uh, I would find the best person for the team. I want the most effective people that have done this before, maybe, or uh, have the skills and talent to do it. And my answer, and I, and I point out to them every single time when we're talking about diversity and inclusion is exactly. So what does that have to do about sex or race or anything else? What, is, what does any of those factors have to do with having the best person in, the, in there for the job? Mm, and it yeah. always gives pause to people. But what what do you think about that answer? Uh, do you agree with the answer? And um, is that something uh, that would be good to pose to people? I think it's a very good example. Uh, great thought experiment. And yeah, in terms of my response, it would be, yeah, get the best person for the job. 
But then the critical element is how do you define the best? Yep. And if it's the best because it's the person who was recommended to you, or maybe just the person who did it last time, then there's you know potential for bias to creep in there, right? And we right. get um, people caught in virtuous loops, right? The guy gets gets picked to maybe oversee a small project for the first time, and then he he learns more about the project, and then he you know gets to go on another project and gets you know and over time the budgets get bigger and stuff, and he's got a lot of experience, which is great. But maybe that came from the very small seed that was planted where he was picked over somebody else. So the best person in this case maybe wouldn't have always been the best if the selection at the beginning was slightly different. And hey, maybe it is, maybe it is. But what I want to make sure people are aware of is, you know, that can happen. You can get these virtuous cycles where your go-to guy or your go-to gal is the same person all the time and you're maybe not using real data to decide who is good for that project. Now, coming back to that, that first point you made around, you know, how do you, how do you select somebody? So how do you define best? And if it is some sort of parameter of performance in the past, you know, and I'm not sure what those project rankings or, or data might be, but, you know, project completion on time or, uh, you know, accuracy of delivery or, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of metrics mm-hmm. and, you know, make, make sure you're recording those metrics, number one. And then two, use them to objectively determine who is the best. Uh, and then you, I think there's a third aspect to consider there. And, and there's also a development piece to it, right? So yeah. again, that, that virtuous cycle. Well, maybe if this guy or this gal has done many of these projects before, we're sort of putting all of our eggs in the same basket, right? We want to maybe give somebody else a chance to develop that you know, project leadership opportunity or, or experience and, and maybe you you have the the person you would have picked as a backup or as an oversight role and you bring somebody else through who can also get that experience makes perfect sense i've seen it in a few times actually in my own project experience that um when i've had to try some try to get somebody to take the lead who i thought would be capable of doing so they didn't want it they they actually not for personal reasons either. They just weren't comfortable in the leadership position. And I think um, when we were talking at the beginning about uh, personal dynamics and the way people behave, that's something to consider as well. I mean, you could put somebody in the position and sure, they may do great, but did they want it in the first place? Hmm. Well, that's a good point you make. And, and I think it's a good thing to explore is, you know, why don't they want it? And depending on you know my experience, I've seen, with different sort of personality traits is some people tend to be overconfident. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would probably count myself in that camp. Um, looking <laughs> back over my early career where I've probably taken on things that, you know, in the end, most of the time worked out pretty well. But maybe if I had looked a little deeper and thought, well, am I, am I really able and capable to do this? Maybe I would have thought a bit differently with, with maybe some more experience, but at the time, I you know made a few leaps and it, and it generally worked out well. Whereas others tend to underestimate their ability more, uh, and, and this is sort of a similar introvert-extrovert sort of area. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they would be more hard on themselves, more critical of their own performance, and and generally more risk-averse. And so, even though they may have all the right, um, let's say, uh, certifications or education or experience to run that project. They just may not be used to saying yes. They're more likely to say no. And that could really be limiting them in their career. Um, particularly if there's somebody right next to them putting their hand up saying, yeah, I'll do it, I'll do it. And you're going to be naturally drawn to say, hey, I, I'm going to give this to somebody who really wants it. Uh, and that's, again, it's maybe that's the beginning of a virtuous circle for that person. Uh, but then maybe as a, you know, going back to the data and, and maybe pushing people a little bit, maybe that is one thing that, organizations may try and do is is push people a bit more particularly if they are aware they are more likely to be self-critical take that on board and and coach the person with that to say hey you know we've been through maybe there's a a certain type of of personality uh testing that that organization uses say hey by the way you know we know and this could be the manager or the coach talking to the employee we know you may have a natural aversion to risk and you may not be 
willing to put yourself out there. Maybe you're, you're less optimistic than some of your colleagues. You know, think about that. Think about that, particularly with the intention of considering your next project. And I'm sure that that might change their outlook somewhat. It's not going to revolutionize things overnight, but that's the sort of self-awareness that people need to develop to understand how they may be limiting their own performance through their, their default settings, through that, that architecture in their brain. It's uh, we're getting back to the same subject, but I think I caught something out of there that we could diverge to. That's a common tool in business, in particular. Um, and I actually am not a fan, to be honest, of these particular tools. But that's the personality test tools. Um, mm-hmm. In my previous studies, uh, well, my last study actually, I used the MBTI, and then I later found out that that thing was not exactly reliable for a couple reasons. But I did find it useful for at the time captures of personality and what i mean by that is people's personality depending on the situation may change and it can change instantaneously for example um in flight or flight responses somebody may for some reason maybe if they're out by themselves they just run because they can and it's uh, a flight response and that's usually associated to introversion so they just they just take off but if they had their kids with them or somebody else they want to protect they stand up they they oftentimes well we've seen the videos where the guy uses his girlfriend as a shield and those are obvious uh, exceptions because obviously they didn't care that much about that person to begin with but uh the the ones that usually stand up to defend whoever they're with um, maybe introverts by, by normal standards, like whenever they're out doing other things, but for some reason they instantaneously become extrovert and stand up. Um, and I think that's also true of any other situation. Um, that's why I don't particularly like most of the, uh, personality tests, uh, aside from the big five personality tests, which no company ever does, <laughs> unfortunately, because it's, something like 600 questions and it's a full psychiatric exam essentially. So no one really wants to subject themselves to that. Um, but what Absolutely. do you think? Yeah. And it's not necessarily scalable, right? Over a whole organization. No, no, it's not. It's, yeah. it's something like two hours to take that stupid thing. Um, I did it once before and I got some very interesting results. Let's just put it that way. Um, well, I- I'll just push you on that for one sec. So did you think it was accurate? Um, yes, actually, the full psychiatric exam was fairly accurate to everything in my personality. Some of it has changed, which does happen over time, um, depending on new situations or experiences. Uh, your personality can change. Your attitudes can change. Um, it usually takes time for core values to change in general. Um, that's why you see people that are, for example, the easiest one that I, I harp on a lot on this channel is uh, religious uh, connotations like you see somebody that's ultra religious become a full fledged atheist outspoken activist um, and usually that those type of conversions take uh, time they take a lot of mental effort because you're changing a core value of yourself most mm-hmm. core values do not change um, people tend to stay hardened to their values unless critically challenged and the only time they become critically challenged is if they challenge it themselves external challenge may trigger it but essentially it's all internal work at that point which is one of the reasons i don't like the the business tests like the e-colors and the mbti and stuff like that those are um snapshot captures the personality at the moment because they're looking for like um introvert extrovert thinking versus feeling stuff like that and those are all situational yeah yeah no i'm completely with you i understand uh your viewpoints there so let's we've talk a lot there about a lot of different stuff so let's try and cover some of those points so sure first of all um personality tests in general um yeah i, I can see there's a huge amount of confusion first of all there's a lot of them i mean there's, yeah. there's dozens and dozens and they all have slightly different ways of measuring and classifying you know sort of different axes they're measuring i mean um myers-briggs you refer to mbti yep uh assesses you over four different dimensions others use you know two or three and some have you know many many more um so that's number one confusion there because they're not always comparing the same thing mm-hmm. uh, and number two i guess would be 
from a business perspective and the way I've used these in the past, they're not meant to be, you know, 100% accurate. Um, I think part of the reason we talked about with the other types of testing is it's got to be scalable. It's got to be something you can implement over, you know, perhaps tens of thousands of people. But because of its limitations, people have to be aware of how to use it. Mm-hmm. It's just an indicator. It's not going to be, you know, absolutely 100% perfect. You know, turn off your brain, just listen to the, or, or use the pamphlet for your personality type, right? No way. That's not going to be the way it works. Yep. It's just one more tool in the toolbox to how to maybe plan your interaction with somebody. Or more importantly for me, I think these tests, number one, have got to be about self-development, learning about yourself, learning about how you are more likely to react in a certain circumstance or how you've reacted in that circumstance in the past. And perhaps you had a consequence of that interaction that was not favorable and you want to stop or prevent that from happening in the future. And that is is number one for me, just using that that type of test or survey to understand yourself. Once you get beyond that, you can start to think about understanding other people. Yeah. But number one, it, it's for yourself. So, uh, one of the point, uh, sorry, to, one of what you mentioned there, which is sure. very important, is the the stressful environment. So you mentioned it in a fight or flight type mm-hmm. circumstance. Yes. I think yes. You know, I think when you've got that situation where, and we talked about brain chemistry before, right? You, you know, you're going to have all different. Uh, of the, those um, elements of your brain perhaps changed by the situation, particularly if it's particularly stressful. Mm-hmm. And we do get that in the office sometimes, right? In, in, in the working environment, you can come across that or, or relationships. And yeah, that can change how you would normally operate. Um, so again, I think, you know, we need to keep that in mind. And for me, these personality tests are to capture you in your generic mode. And I'm sure we are operating in that sort of mode, that normal, average state, steady state, probably 80 to 90% of our day, right? There will be times we get stressed out for different reasons, work, kids, families, traffic, (laughs) whatever it is. And as you say, we can have a very different reaction in those circumstances. But if you want to work with somebody in a certain way or manage yourself most of the time, I think those tools can be a good indicator of the sort of things that you need to work on. And, and I, I say that, you know, with quite a strong advocacy because it really has helped me. It's something I've found over my career and I've taken you know, many of these tests and, and one, the e-colors, which I use a lot, I've taken, you know, three times over 10 years or 12 years and I've always had the same, the same result. So I haven't changed that much. So I know the mistakes I made 10 years ago are the sort of same mistakes I'm liable to make now. Hmm. Uh, and I can identify those. Uh, very clearly, you know, I, I know I, I can talk too much, maybe like on this podcast. Um, <laughs> I, I can be maybe too casual. I'm not a big fan of, of delving into data. I like to think and act quickly. So these things that can be strengths, but they're also ways that I can make mistakes. Sure. Uh, and, and I can maybe go into a little bit more. So just more examples, people to really understand the point. So somebody who, like myself, is not necessarily... Uh, very excited about going through lots of data or doing a huge amount of research. You know, I can do it if I really have to, but I wouldn't naturally be predispositioned to do that. So when I have had to do that, I've had to really manage myself to not make mistakes and to, you know, keep my focus. And whether I've been, you know, sending emails or, uh, or even finishing up some sort of economic analysis, I've got to check my work two, three times, because I'm the guy in the past who's sent you the email with the words missing or the spelling errors. And I've, I've sent that email before I've even checked it. You know, even spell checks, too slow for me, right? That's taking valuable microseconds out of my day. Just bang, send them off. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's where I've made a lot of mistakes in the past, whereas I'm sure others would be completely opposite to that, uh, or at least different to that. Very much going through the data, very much taking their time being reluctant, perhaps, to make a decision, wanting to get another opinion before they make a decision or wanting to get more data before they make a decision. You know, that's the sort of differences that uh, people can have. And once you are aware of those, you can perform better. Yeah, I've noticed that 
um, in most of them, you you tend to get the the same reaction. But in social interaction, uh, your default state's not always the one that you'll get because how you uh, act to yourself not may not change. It depends on the personality too, of course, but it may change when you interact with somebody else. Um, just depending on your already established relationship with that person. You may actually forego some of your own personalities. That, by default, that's usually what you do. But when you uh, approach a person that you already know, uh, maybe you get along with them, that those inhibitions change. For example, like you said, you, you, you tend to talk a lot. Well, some people that um, are more introverted, like myself, actually, I don't tend to talk a lot. Um, in meetings, I usually sit there and listen. Unless uh, I have the opportunity to interject and then you can't shut me up. So it depends on the situation, I guess. Um, but let's uh, let's take that from a little bit. Um, I wanted to get... Uh, we're going to do a full right turn here. I wanted to get a little bit into um, the organization you joined and, and what your mission and vision is over there. And how do you rate against your competitors? So um, one of the competitors I noted that's in the United States that other big companies actually use is Catalyst. I don't know if you've ever looked into them or not or had the opportunity. Um, they're probably one of your competitors in this space because they also focus on coaching CEOs on a top-down level for diversity and inclusion. So um, let's get into a little bit about your company, uh, Mission and Vision, and what you hope to achieve out of it. Sure. Thank you very much. So my company is called Diversonomics, uh, I mentioned before. And as you can see, uh, that's a, a mishmash of two words, so diversity and, and you could say economics or, or anything enomics, which is for me about performance. So be it financial performance or other performance or always measuring performance. Sure. And so really the tagline to that is is performance through diversity. And that captures for me some of the key elements. So you know, personality or cognitive diversity is very important, as is organizational culture, and then diversity and inclusion itself, which is sort of related to those two fields. It's sort of a Venn diagram of, of culture at the macro level and, and cognitive diversity at the sort of limited personal or small group interaction level. So it's a training and consultancy company that helps other organizations to realize that potential and to help them perform better. And these are probably uh, performance uh, dividends that are already in that company but are not being utilized. So again, thinking about that cognitive diversity that people perhaps don't really realize they have and don't understand why that guy from accounting was a jerk or maybe they are not making the best decisions or not being as creative as they can be because they're not embracing diversity or even to the point we mentioned before, maybe hiring the wrong people. Right or hiring people uh, in, in a non-justifiable uh, way for performance. Okay. So all those different areas uh, can be covered. But you know, you you actually raised a great point talking about Catalyst, and there is a distinction here. So Catalyst, I see as an advocacy group. Um, they do have coaching, but they have a particular mission around uh, gender diversity, uh, particularly uh, you know obviously women. Uh, rising to higher levels of management and, and to boards of directors and so on, higher mm -hmm. levels of companies. And they coach people around that. So, you know, I agree with the mission of the company, but that's not the same as my company, which is more of a consultancy and focused on cognitive diversity and group culture. Whereas uh, I think Catalyst is probably a little more one-dimensional and mm -hmm. perhaps stuck on the more traditional identity diversity angle. Yeah, that's true. Um, uh, it does sound like you know your competitors, which is good. Uh, I've looked into them myself. I thought about doing a, a YouTube expose on, on them because they tend to reach to the upper echelon. So they want to work from top down, which is more an advocacy approach. If you want to... Um, well, I guess it's also a good sales approach, too, if you think about it. Because I know of other companies who, like Oracle, for example... Um, that's what they do. They go from top down to sell their product to get it into a company. They may get interjected or in introduced into a project that makes the decision. But by and large, their approach has always been to wine and dine the people that control the budget 
versus the people that are spending the budget, the project people versus the manager saying who can spend what. And I think they take the same approach, as it were. They work from top down. Um, so how does your company, or your organization rather, um, try to consult people? Like, uh, Do you have a star program or something like that that you can discuss uh, that would uh, benefit any business? Well, it's very much a niche approach. Um, as you say, you know, we these advocacy groups and perhaps other consultancies, you know, large companies uh, who are already established in the space, such as, you know, Corn Ferry is obviously a large uh, HR consultancy. And they do everything, right? They do senior uh, leadership succession planning and recruiting and, and training programs. So they, they're broad brush, large enterprise wide provider. Whereas I'm, I'm on the niche level. So, it's almost a bespoke approach for every client. So we, I want to talk to them about the challenges they're having, where they feel performance is lacking, because that's what it's about. It's about performance, right? About making the company better. And it could be a company, it could be a, a charity or a community group. Any organization has typically got some performance element. They want to do something and do it better than they're doing it already. So by looking at perhaps where they're falling short, by assessing perhaps their diversity or their cognitive diversity, what they're trying to do. Are they trying to make decisions better? They're trying to be more creative. Are they are they just trying to improve maybe safety performance, right? Or financial or compliance. You know, some of those things are going to have different approaches. Um, where it's a a broad uh, workforce engagement where everybody needs to get a little bit better at doing something. Typically either managing themselves for development or maybe just following the rules that the company has, then that is one type of approach that will no doubt require training and guidance across the organization. Or if it's perhaps something around a de-biasing an organization or improving inclusiveness or uh, changing the culture of an organization, then that may be something done at a higher level, which is probably more to do with changing the systems in the company. And I don't mean you know, IT systems or technical systems, but perhaps just the way uh, the organization is run and operated. Uh, it could be procedures or policies that will change. And that is something around, we mentioned, you know, the hiring and mm -hmm. having a requirement that, you know, different uh, people sit on a selection panel from two or three departments with different experience levels. Maybe the hiring managers not even in the room, right? This was something that, that Laszlo Bok talked about at Google. Instead, you bring in the subordinates. You know, they have a pretty big stake in in who's their bosses. Like some of these more radical approaches, perhaps, can be applied and to change some of the thinking that's out there around how these things should be done. That's an interesting approach, actually. I don't think many people do that to bring in. Bring in the people that this person's going to be in charge of to interview right. that it's, person. It's sort of counter counter to normal thinking, right? But yeah. um, that, you know, that's the approach that some of the tech companies who have you know a different business than others, right? We're, we're not quite in the industrial revolution, but I think a lot of companies are in a top down mode where the guys at the top are perhaps supposed to be you know smarter than the rest, and and the rest of us do what they say. Mm -hmm. Whereas in, uh, you know, let's, let's stay with Google as an example. In Google, the people who are the smartest should be on the front line, right? They should be the engineers and the, uh, the whiz kids who are making up the, the code and the software and the concepts. And what's the manager for? Well, the manager's there to help them, to give them resources, you know, provide some guidance, no doubt, keep them aligned with the organization's mission as a whole. But the manager is there to make the, the engineer's job easier, not the other way around, which may be a bit more traditional. So I think I like their approach there. They've really taken that to heart and thought, well, how do we get the best people? And it's data-driven, and it's by embracing some of these different ways of working. Yeah, it's a clever idea, too. So um, we're nearly out of time, but uh, I'm going to hit on that last question that I sent you uh, to kind of wrap this up, and that's, why should anybody care about the diversity and inclusion? Um, what's the issue today, and and why should any business really reflect on this? 
yeah, yeah, sure. So I think there's there's two sides to it. Um, the first piece is is just about equality. So you know, being a non-discriminatory company, and that's important. It's, it's the law <laughs> for a start, right? Yeah. But it's also the right thing to do. So that that's that's part of it. Um, but where I am driving the conversation, where I am I'm helping organizations is in performance, right? So performing better, whatever your mission is, your organization's mission is, you can do it better. And we can do it better by having a diverse team that makes better decisions, that is more creative, and is and brings a different perspective, right? So that is really important just to get better performance, be it better sales, better code, better product development, you know, more uh, sell to more customers, sell to different customers. That can be achieved through diversity, but it's got to be inclusive and you've got to have the right culture. It's an excellent answer. I think it goes back to the, back to my uh, thought experiment. You got a $6 million project. Who do you get? Well, the best person. Well, your mission and vision doesn't mention anything about race or color, so why should you care about either one of those attributes? Yeah, yeah, I can see that. As, as long as the, as you define, you know, what is the best, as when we had that conversation, right? Yep. And then yep. as long as all the people who can be in the room are in the room already or in the selection pool and they haven't been uh, unable to get there for any other reason, then absolutely right. Excellent. All right. Well, that's that's pretty much it for this show. I uh, thank you for coming on. Uh, just hold on for a little bit as I, I wrap this up, if you would, please. Um, to anybody that wants to listen to this, you you can see up my next episode on Block Talk Radio. Uh, this will not be on my YouTube channel. This is a little bit more serious conversation, and YouTube's not for serious conversations. So uh, thank you, everyone, for joining, and have a great night.